today what I really want to talk to you about this afternoon is how do we understand mental health from a really a Christian point of view. Um, you know, my objectives are, you know, I'm going to give you a quick overview on the burden of mental health globally, and then um, I'm going to talk about misconceptions about mental illness, and really particularly misconceptions within the church community. And then I want to talk about, then what is a biblical view of understanding mental illness and mental health? And then from there, I'm going to talk about what is really our call as believers um, in terms of addressing mental illness. So according to the World Health Organization, mental health problems are among the leading causes of global burden of disease. You know, according to the World Health Organization, there's about 450 million people that suffer from mental health problems. Um, disorders. There's about one million people that commit suicide every year. And there was a recent study that showed that suicide rates have actually increased by 20% in the last two decades. Four, and six, um, four of the six leading causes of years lived in disability are actually due to neuropsychiatric disorders like depression, alcohol use disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, and one in four, fam- one in four uh, families at least have one member with a mental health disorder. Um, so there's about 25 million people that suffer from schizophrenia globally and about 90 million that suffer from alcohol and drug use-related disorders. And 13% of the global, uh, global burden of disease are related to untreated mental health disorders. So um, according to the World Health Organization, they named depression as the second most common cause of disability behind cardiovascular disease. It accounts for the third leading cause of disease burden globally. And it's predicted that by 2030, depression will be actually the leading cause of disease burden throughout the world. And so here I wanted to show you in this graph, really what I want you guys to pay attention to is, you know, given there's about 450 million people suffering from mental illness, if you look at the disparity of developmental assistance and financial support that is allocated to mental health globally compared to other uh, diseases, you see that mental health, there's barely any kind of assistance given at all. But you can see for HIV, maternal health, all of these combined, you see about almost most of the resources globally is allocated to all these different diseases and mental health is completely ignored, although it's one of the most, one of the leading causes of global burden throughout the world. According to the World Health Organization, 40% of countries have no mental health policies. Over 30% have no mental health programs, and 25% of countries have no mental health legislation whatsoever. So this kind of then leads me, you can see there's a great disparity regarding mental health and mental illness. And so what are some of the misconceptions that are there regarding uh, mental illness? And I think perhaps more than any other field of medicine, I think the field of psychiatry is seen as wholly antithetical to the Christian worldview, and that is mainly held by evangelical communities. There are about four extreme viewpoints within the Christian community that are held, and these misconceptions are dangerous because there's some truth to them. And I think as one writer put it, um, half a truth is even more dangerous than a lie because a lie you can detect. But half a truth, it's so misleading that it can mislead you for a long time. And so with these misconceptions, there's elements of truth in them, but it's not the whole truth. 
And so one of these misconceptions is that uh, mental illness is sin. You know, that somehow your relationship, to, your relationship to God is not really right. Um, you're either harboring unrepentant, unforgiveness inside of you. Um, so if you pray hard enough or if you spend more time with God, then you should be okay. And the idea of wanting to commit suicide or wrestling with death is completely seen as almost like that unforgivable sin with Judas, right? And that's the kind of stigma that people that suffer with mental illness carry with them um, because the church really has not spoken about this. And But what's so interesting is that... Um, if you look at some of the greatest Christians and missionaries throughout the world, they um, suffered with incredible bouts of depression and a lot of mental illness. You know, people like Charles Spurgeon suffered with depression. William Cooper, he was one of them, a very famous hymn writer. If you guys are familiar with, there's a fountain filled with blood that draws from Emmanuel's vein. Um, the sinners plunge beneath the flood and lose their all guilt and shame. That, that was a, a hymn that was written by William Cooper. He's also written hymns like to Jesus the crown of my hope or far from the world or Lord I flee and this and so this gentleman suffered with severe depression and he found himself admitted to psychiatric institutions multiple times throughout his lifetime and and wrestled with depression and wrestled with suicide but often you that is um, that's not accepted and the Christian view or understanding of mental illness the second misconception, you know, this is a painting by St. Francis Borgia. He's performing an exorcism by, it's, it was uh, painted by a famous painter, um, a Spanish painter in the 18th and 19th century. And there's been a long um, history uh, where we think that mental illness is really associated with the demonic possessions. And so the belief is that you just have to deliver them from these demonic possessions and their mental illness will be okay. And so this is and so there's elements of truth in this, but it's just not the whole the whole truth. So and then another thought um, that is uh, that kind of pervades some of these misconceptions is that mental illness does not really exist. You know, um, depression, you should be able just to get over it. Um, you know, you just need a little bit of biblical counseling. Um, and the idea of even taking psychiatric medications is kind of seen as taboo. You know, it's kind of like that happy pill that you're going to give yourself to change your body chemistry. And, and that's not real and that's not right. And so they think that you can just kind of get over your depression or get over your anxiety. And so another thing that is often true is that people are often afraid of individuals that have mental illness, whether schizophrenia um, or other psychotic disorders. You know, we tend to think that they're dangerous. And um, we see that even in different parts of the world, often they're kind of shunned from their families, they're chained, they're put into dungeons and cellars and completely segregated from everyone else in the rest of the world. Um, there was a survey that was done in 2006 the, uh, an American survey, and they found that 60% of Americans thought that people with schizophrenia were likely to act violently towards someone else. And 32% of Americans thought that people with major depression were likely to act violently. But this is actually not true. The truth is that as a group, mentally ill people are no more violent than any other group. Um, in fact, they're actually more likely to be victims 
rather than themselves being violent or perpetrators. One literature showed that only 4% of violence is attributed to serious mental illness. And about 90% of patients with mental illness were more likely to harm themselves than they were to harm other people. And they were 2.5 times more likely to be victims of violence. So I really like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says that ignorance is more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil. It can be exposed and if need be prevented by use of force. But against ignorance, we are defenseless. Neither protest nor the use of force accomplishes anything here. Reason falls on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. And when facts are irrefutable, they're just pushed aside as inconsequential or as incidental. And I think this really speaks to the voice of the, the church today. I think that the church has been so ignorant and confused and uncomfortable and uncomfortable in this arena of mental health that it has, as a result, avoided it or ignored it or just kind of pushed it off as purely a spiritual issue and in the process have left many casualties in its wake. Um, there was a recent study that was done by Lifeway Research Group on, um, in America regarding mental illness and the church. And these are some of the things that they found. They found that 65% of family members and 59% of individuals with mental illness wanted their church to talk more openly about mental illness so that the topic was not taboo. Um, about 66% of Protestant pastors said that they seldom speak to their congregation about mental illness. And one in six, about 16%, they said that they may speak about mental illness once a year. And 22% said that they were reluctant to help those who suffer from acute mental illness because they thought that it would take too much time. Um, then... Now, about 23% of pastors said that they actually have experienced their own mental illness, and 12% said that they have been diagnosed with mental illness, but those same pastors were often reluctant to share their own struggles. And so what's interesting is that churches can talk openly about cancer, diabetes, heart attack, or other health conditions, but they should be able to do the same when it comes to mental illness. You know, I was trying to think, when was a time that I remember behind the pulpit a pastor praying for someone that struggled with schizophrenia? And I wonder if you ask yourself that. Have you ever heard somebody, I mean, I can remember our pastors praying about, you know, someone that was in the hospital for a heart attack or this, but I've never, I can't remember someone praying for someone that had bipolar or schizophrenia or was suffering from severe depression. It's not because they don't exist. So you kind of wonder, why is that? Um, nearly half, um, sorry about that, nearly half evangelical fundamentalists or born-again Christians believe that prayer and Bible study alone can overcome serious mental illness. And 10% said that they've actually changed churches because of how a particular church responded to their um, mental illness. And then um, 13% said that they stopped attending church or could not really find a church where they belonged due to feeling not accepted because of their mental illness. Um, so the Guardian newspaper in the UK um, asked its, its evangelical readers to submit their stories about their experiences with mental illness and how they felt their churches 
discussed it or handled it. And one responder said that, I've experienced depression, anxiety, PTSD. My later church did not address it at all in over two years. Over the course of my life, from Baptist to fundamentalist to Presbyterian churches, I've been told that any mental health problems in my life are caused by A, innocent theo- incorrect theology, or B, unrepentant sin. Most have stated directly that they do not believe that mental illness exists, but that every supposed illness is a spiritual problem. Psychology and psychiatry were almost always distrusted as demonic, and reading my Bible more and obeying my pastor were the solutions. These are real people. Another person said, I've dealt with anxiety and PTSD at different times in my life. Currently, these issues are under control, but I have to maintain a balance and healthy relationships in my life, or else they can flare up again. In the past, churches either didn't acknowledge or talk about mental illness, or when I was a child, the church I attended stigmatized those described as having symptoms of psychosis, i.e. saying things such as the devil has taken over a person's mind. And we can see that from these testimonies, we need um, the need to love and care for our brothers and sisters suffering from mental illness is really great. Um, I really love this painting. It's one of my favorite paintings. This is an autobiographical painting by Edward Munch, and it's called The Scream, and some of you may be familiar with it. And in this painting, what it captures is um, a moment of intense anxiety and fear that overcomes the painter, and as he's suffering with that, his two of his friends kind of leave him behind and continue walking on ahead of him, completely unaware of the emotional turmoil that's going on within him. And I love this painting because I think it really depicts what is going on with our fellow brothers and sisters that are suffering from mental illness in the church today. You know, it really depicts a picture that isolation and suffering of people with mental illness and the church really needs to wake up and begin to bridge that gap between itself and the mental health community. And really as believers and as a church, we need to be able to empower and serve those struggling with mental illness and exhibit to all people, you know, the love of Christ. And I think that really the first step towards bridging that gap is to have an understanding of mental illness from a biblical perspective um, so that we can actually shape the narrative rather than conforming to a false narrative. And so then this really kind of brings me to um, then how can we understand mental health from a biblical worldview? I think Walter said it well when he said, if you wish to converse with me, define your terms. So then, so what do we mean by then mental illness? You know, according to the World Health Organization, mental health is kind of defined as a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities that they can cope with normal stresses of life and they can work productively and fruitfully and be able to contribute to, um, to society and their community. So when you think about the mental illness, I think Carl Menninger, who is a famous American psychiatrist, he describes it as a disruption in a disruption that affects one's thinking, mood, and behavior, and it can manifest in any different spectrum of illnesses, from mood disorders and depression to psychosis to anxiety. So really, when you think about mental illness, it's really the persistent failure to cope with internal or external induced stresses. So then, you know, 
understanding that when we think about just a purely biological approach to mental illness, you know, thinking that the biological reductionism thinking, the idea that man is reduced to the sum of his or her own material parts is really antithetical to the biblical understanding of man. You know, if Christ is really the example of how we do ministry, you know, of how we care for the sick and how we live our life, then looking at a person from a purely biological worldview would be inadequate, you know, because Christ always addressed the person as a whole. So then our approach should be really undergirded with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is not only true for psychiatric illnesses, but it's also true for physical illnesses such as asthma and heart disease. And I really like what Bonhoeffer says. He says, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath um, the cross of Jesus. So as believers then, our approach to caring for mental health should be under the backdrop of the cross. So this does not mean that we completely negate secular models of mental illness or the DSM-5 or think that they're completely flawed, but rather we should incorporate them and we should see them through the eyes of scripture and through God's view of man. So then, really, when it comes to then understanding the biblical view of mental health, we really have to begin with the whole person. And it has to begin with the right concept of man. Namely, that we have been created in the image of God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1. You know, as bearers of his image, man is made then both in, as a, with material parts and immaterial parts. So we are made up of both bodies and soul and spirit. Um, you know, often there's been a lot of debate within the Christian community about, you know, are we three parts, spirit, body, soul, like that tripartite view, or are we just two part, the dual nature, body and soul? And really, that doesn't really apply when it comes to us understanding mental health from a biblical worldview, because what is true, regardless of what position that you hold, and what has been seen in scripture, that is that man is made up of both material part and immaterial part. So, and this is going to be fundamentally important because it then begins to set the framework by which we relate to our fellow man and how we approach the mentally ill. So we have to realize that our bodies do not function independently from our spirit or our soul, and neither does our spirit function independently from our bodies. You know, there has to be a unity, like a cohesion between both the material body and the immaterial soul for us to be healthy and well. And that framework really has to be there if you're going to start understanding mental health from a biblical worldview. I really like what um, Jeremy Pierre says. He's an associate professor of biblical counseling in Southern Seminary. And he says that the immaterial soul does not function independently of the material body. The soul is not a ghost in the machine whose function is autonomous of corporal mechanisms. God intentionally designed humankind to represent himself in the physical world. He says a psychosomatic unity comprising of both soul that reflects the immaterial God and also a body that grounds him in material creation. So then what that means is that our framework should rest in this cohesion of the physical and the immaterial part of man functioning together in unity. So the fact then that man comprises of the psychosomatic unity 
has several implications for us. So the first implication that it has is that psychosomatic unity means that human sorrow and human suffering, whether mental or otherwise, is never merely physical, but always involves our spiritual response. So what does that mean? So when you approach a human problem, you should not approach it with this false dichotomy of asking, is it a spiritual problem or is it a physical problem? Because that creates this false dichotomy that separates the two worlds. But rather, you should consider how the physical is affecting the spiritual and how the spiritual is affecting the physical. And in this way, you guard yourself from concluding that a problem is merely physical and ignoring the spiritual influence of it, or it's merely uh, spiritual and ignoring the physical influence of it. The second implication to the psychosomatic unity is that um, sin affects the whole person. You know, as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, you know, there the world kind of, entered into a wrong and aberrant DNA. We all have broken DNAs. And so as a result, diseases come into play. You know, our bodies can over, over-replicate their cells and produce cancer. You know, organs can produce extra hormones and lead to a lot of disorders. Uh, and our brains can also lose coherent processing, and they can start hearing voices or seeing things that others don't see. You know, again, I want to quote uh, Jeremy Pierre here. He says, in a groaning creation, it makes sense that physical realities can frustrate spiritual ideals. Brains don't develop optimally. Endocrine systems fail to regulate hormones. Injuries and diseases strike. So because of the fall, we have a broken man and a broken world. And how do we see a broken man? We see it through pathologies, right? Incoherent minds, dysfunctioning bodies, autoimmune systems. How do we see a broken world? We see that through, for example, droughts and um, and. Uh, where, where, where there's like no rain or where trees don't produce fruit. And so we see that in both ends, the world and man, that we are broken. So then the third implication to having this psychosomatic unity is that um, as image bearers of God, we have been called to exert dominion over creation. So in psychosomatic unity, then it means that we are called to mitigate the effects of sin on both the spiritual and physical elements of man. So we are to over, um, we are to rule over the created order, arranging it in ways that honors God. So what does that mean? For example, we make a cursed ground that cannot yield fruit. We overcome it by creating the latest farming technologies and irrigation systems. You know, we do that so that we can overcome the curse of the ground. And in the same way, we can mitigate um, the, the effects of sin on the fall and on the body by applying, for example, we give insulin to diabetics to restore the natural order of their bodies. And we give chemotherapy to cancer patients to stop the improper replication of drugs, um, of cells. And so in that same way, we should be able to give psychiatric drugs to help people restore their regular brain function. And then finally, you know, when we talk about psychosomatic unity, it means that 
Christ came to die for the whole person. So this psychosomatic unity does not disappear with the new creation. Rather, man's soul will return to his intended origin when he receives his imperishable and new physical body, just like Jesus did. So when Christ comes, we're going to have a new body with a renewed spirit. So this psychosomatic unity does not end, but it remains after Christ comes. So, so then this kind of then leads uh, as to the question of what is the role of Satan and sin in mental health. But before we, we answer that question, you know, we first have to understand that we have established now that we are the image bearers of God, containing both material and immaterial part that function together in this psychosomatic unity. And we've also established that sin um, has come into the world and has really broken that unity. So then when we come to ask this question, you know, I want to first address what is the assumption that we're making behind that question? You know, why don't we ask what is the role of sin and Satan in cardiovascular disease? Or what is the role of sin and Satan in infectious diseases? We don't ask that question because behind it is this prejudice or this assumption that mentally, mental illness is really relegated as something different than other physical illnesses. And that kind of shows our own prejudice that we have towards what mental illness is compared to physical ailments that are there. Um, but that said, you know, the scripture really gives us four different categories by which sin and Satan actually cause disease. And this is true for both physical disorders as well as psychiatric ones. And for this, I'm really indebted to um, a Christian psychiatrist and former um, Christian Medical Fellowship chairman, Dr. Nick Land. So most of this is really from his work. So he says there's really four main categories through which sin and Satan can affect disease in, in our life. And so the first way is through the general effects of sin due to the fall. And there's really no need for me to repeat that because I've already kind of talked about how the effects of the fall have come and have caused disease. But um, a good illustration of that is really seen in John chapter 9. You know, here the disciples and Jesus are walking and they come across a man that is blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So we see here in this case that it wasn't individual sin or anything like that that caused this man to be um, blind, but it was already there as a result of the fall of man. And so then the second role or the second way that sin or Satan can affect mental illness is through individual sin. You know, though there is much suffering that results because of circumstances that are outside of our control, we can't dismiss the inevitable consequences of our own personal sin. And we see that in Psalm 38. You know, David talks about how his bones have no soundness because of his sin. Or he says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. That my wounds fester because of my sinful folly. So there is a role where individual sin can affect and can cause both physical disease and also mental disease. And we can see that too, like someone that may drink too much alcohol, it might lead to liver disease. Or if you have divorce or adultery in your relationships, it's going to lead to depression, you know, in either uh, in, in both individuals or particularly if you have children. There are a lot of kids that have suffered psycho, like psychological um, 
pain and depression and anxiety as a result of divorce at a very young age. So our own sin can cause um, pain not only within ourselves but also with people around us. Now, the third way that sin or Satan can um, affect mental health or mental illness is through demonic attacks. So um, when we see that, for example, in Job, you know, Job not only, um, in Job we see there was not only physical disease that came about as a result of the demonic attack, but we also see manifestations of psychological, uh, that he was affected psychologically. Job was depressed. In fact, we can even argue if we read through the book of Job's that he was actually suicidal and there are times when he wished God would take his life. And this all came because there was a wager, right? Satan comes to God and asks if he can, if he can, if he can can inflict pain on Job. So there are times that people can suffer from different kinds of illnesses, whether it's physical or mental, due to demonic attacks. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to point out is, you know, when Satan went to go and ask um, God to um, inflict Job, you know, God asked him, where did you come from? And Satan told, he said, from going to and fro the earth and from walking up and down on it. And that's how he identified Job. And in 1 Peter it says, let us... um, and First Peter says that the devil roars like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. So we always have to be on our spiritual guard. You know, this, in this place, you know, we will have war, and we always have to be alert and, and recognize that um, darkness always wages war against us. And so then the, uh, the fourth way that um, we can have sin or Satan can attack mental illnesses through demonic possessions. And so demonic possessions are real. Um, There are several instances in scripture where we see Christ casting out demons. One example is in Mark chapter 5. Um, here, um, here we see a garrison man with enormous strength. Um, he cries loudly. He engages in deliberate self-harm. And we see how Christ had to cast out the demon from him. We also see demon possessions manifest as epileptic seizures in Matthew chapter 17. We also see demonic possessions manifest as blindness or muteness in uh, Matthew chapter 12. So from these examples, you know, what we can see is that there are a diverse presentations of demonic possessions. It's not just mentally ill. It's not just psychosis. But there are other ways that demonic possessions can actually manifest in people, including physical illness as well. Um, and I think another reason why psychiatric illness is not just demonic possession is that if you look at MRI scans and like functional MRI scans, you can see structural brain changes in individuals that suffer from different types of psychiatric illness. And also the fact that neuroleptic medications, people respond well to those, indicates that not all psychotic disorders are due to um, demonic possessions. Unless we believe that antipsychotic medications can cast out demons, we have to know that there's got to be other reasons for why people are psychotic beside being possessed by the devil. Um, and I'll give you an example, um, two examples of this. One was when I was um, in the emergency room at MGH, uh, where I'm working in Boston, 
um, we were, I was called, I was consulted on a patient that was brought into the emergency room because she was making signs of the crucifix and like kind of repeating prayers and kind of speaking nonsensically. She was 53 years old, Chinese American, and they thought this was really more of a psychiatric issue. So we were consulted to see her and kind of admit her to the psychiatric unit. So I went to go see her and I tried to talk to her and I could barely get any information from her. Like she's like blessing me <laughs> and, you know, trying to cast out demons from me and all this stuff. And, so I was like, well, is there anybody else that I can talk to so I can kind of find out more information about her? She's like, yeah, you can talk to the Pope, the Pope John Paul II. I'm like, well, I really can't get access to him. And so I remember like kind of going back and trying to dig into charts to see what, you know, do we have any history from her? And we, you know, we have this partner system where we can look into charts of other hospitals as well. And I couldn't find any information from her. And that was really unusual for a 53-year-old if she has this chronic, long, psychotic um, disorder that there would be no history of her. So I didn't really feel comfortable to admit her to the psychiatric unit. And I said, we need to do more workup before we kind of dis- determine disposition. So we, I asked them if they can do some blood work. And then I also asked if they can do MRI. And they were gracious. And lo and behold, the MRI came back with a frontal lobe lesion that was pretty large. And so she ended up being admitted to the medicine service with neurosurgery consult. So in this case, you know, there was actually an organic cause for her psychotic presentation. And if we just quickly dismiss it as something, then we kind of can lose the other elements that are there. And then another example is with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, we see in Daniel chapter 4, he doesn't take heed to the dreams that God has given him. And so eventually God kind of causes him to lose his sanity. And in the Bible it says that, you know, he ate grass like an ox, that his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claw. And he really had this psychotic period of time. But then it says once he looked up to the heavens, he says God restored his sanity. And in this case, this is another example where it wasn't a demonic possession, but it was something that God had allowed in Nebuchadnezzar. And so I really like um, how Nick Land really summarizes well the, you know, the errors that occur regarding demonic possessions and the church and mental illness. He says, our churches too often fall into one uh, one of the other of these extremes, either denying the role of the demonic or becoming preoccupied with it and describing and ascribing to Satan phenomenon that have much more neutral medical or theological explanations. So this kind of leads me to really the main point that I want you guys to get out is that there has to be spiritual discernment. You know, the word of God says that um, you know, the Bible says that the word of God is living and active, that it speaks to us today. So we can't just have this blanket statement, you know, psychiatric illness or mental illness is just physical and just biological, or no, it's just spiritual, or no, it's just, you know, demon possession. You know, we can't have these blanket cookie cutter statements. We really have to see and assess each individual and seek the Lord and have the Lord speak into that, because it can be different depending on who you're treating or who, who you're standing in front of. And in light of this, it is good for us to keep in mind that during Jesus' ministry, he sometimes healed, he sometimes forgave sins, and he sometimes exercised demons. It wasn't all the same for everybody. And so we have to have that spiritual acuity and in tuneness with the Lord to know how to address the people that we see, not just with mental illness, but also other physical ailments as well.
And so, you know, then now before I move on, um, I just wanted to say a word about suffering because I think it's really important um, to kind of understand the biblical view of suffering, which in general is that God does sometimes allow sinful men to commit evil acts or allow suffering to happen to his children for the greater good. That God does allow suffering. That's one of the ways that he communes with us. He communicates with that with us. We see that with the story of Joseph, for example. We see it in the story of Daniel chapter um, 9. There, there are times when God allows suffering for greater good and greater glory. So then where, where do we go from here? Um, the, uh, Ron Powers, he uh, he wrote this book called No One Cares About Crazy People. And I remember just crying my heart out under the first two lines of the book. Um, and so he is really a famous um, journalist, Fulton Prize-winning journalist, who ended up having two of his sons develop schizophrenia. And one of them ended up committing suicide and really had a really horrendous story and just so much inequity that his children faced because of their illness. And he wrote this book. And in this book, he says, the future care of the mentally ill will depend upon whether Americans, and you can kind of place any state or country that you're living in can recognize that their physically troubled brothers and sisters are not a threat to communities, but potential partners with communities for not only their own, but the community's regeneration. So you have to recognize that, you know, in order to care for the mentally ill holistically, we can't just shun them on the other side and offer services that way. They are part of us, and they are part of our community. And for us to have actually a strong community that exemplifies Christ, they have to be within us and a part of us. Um, you know, I, this is kind of a really painful image, and this is an image that's actually really real and that happens in many different parts of the world. And, you know, Christ calls us to heal the brokenhearted, to set captives free, and we really have a biblical mandate to care for the least of these amongst us, that we can't, we can't choose who are the least of these. They all are. And, and people with mental illness are one of those that have the least voice because they're so misunderstood and they're so, people are so afraid of them, like I shared earlier, they really fall through the cracks of care. Even in the Christian community, I think the church has been asleep uh, when it comes to caring for the mentally ill. So this kind of then leads me um, to kind of talk about briefly what is then our call as believers? You know, what are we supposed to do as a church? And so the first is that as a church, we need to break the silence. You know, we need to fight the stigma by educating pastors, church leaders, congregation, and communities. You know, what's so ironic is within the last two or three months, there have been several senior pastors in California and different parts of the U.S. that have committed suicide. And so you can see even within themselves, there's such a stigma collectively that they don't even feel comfortable to share their own insecurities. So, you know, we have to be able to break that silence and to break that stigma so that people feel like there is a voice within the church to talk about mental illness, to talk about these things that they're struggling with. 
You know, the second is that church congregations should be a safe place for those who are struggling with mental illness. So what do I mean by that? So, for example, you know, we have like health fairs and things like that and, you know, ministries within our church. But there's really rarely do I find a church that has a ministry for the mentally ill or for depression. So we need to be able to incorporate that into our churches, because when you do that, then it kind of starts breaking that stigma that you can actually talk about it. You know, one of the most one of the most possessive things on earth is to hold shame within you, to hold something hidden within you. I think uh, Maya Angelou, I think she said, there's no greater burden within a soul than to hold a secret inside of you. And I think that but when you express it, when you declare it outside, there's something about declaring it that gives freedom. And so I think it's really important to be able to have a place within the church where people that are struggling with depression or anxiety or other mental illness can feel safe and are not labeled as they're just too much work. You know, like it just has to take extra care to do, you know, to love on this person. And in that same vo- in, that, in that same vein, we need to just like if we have a broken bone, we're going to recommend somebody to go see an orthopedic surgeon, or if you're going to have a heart attack, we recommend them to go see a cardiologist. We should feel comfortable if someone is struggling with severe depression or other mental illness. We should feel comfortable to recommend them to go see a psychiatrist. You know, like you're not going to say if someone has an MI, let's just pray that away. You know, you're going to tell them go see a doctor. So why is it that if someone's suffering with severe depression you say let's just pray that away and so that so we need to search within our souls why we do that and there should be some freedom and and should be okay for people to see psychiatrists if they're struggling Um, and then the third is that we really need to have a holistic approach when addressing mental health within the church communities so you know we need to have a comprehensive strategy that includes education prevention screening and also addressing social factors that affect mental health like poverty or lack of access, discrimination. And we really need to try to find ways to empower those struggling with mental illness as we share the hope of Christ that we have with them. And then fourthly, um, the church really needs to offer services to the nations as an example of Christ. You know, when we send out missionaries to go into the world, to go into communities to work, we can't neglect the mentally ill, you know, because in the communities where we are serving, in the nations where we are working, there are going to be mentally ill people within that community. And we have, the church has to be prepared and, and prepare its disciples and its missionaries to be able to address those issues in the field where they're serving and where they're working as well, that they should not be neglected. And this includes partnering with local churches, partnering with local leaders to be able to educate communities to break the stigma that is around mental illness um, and to to teach them about what is a biblical way of understanding because often in you know in different parts of the world they're either seen as witchcraft and there's so much misconceptions about it that we have an obligation to really teach and expose that and expose the truth wherever we go so then really you know the bible says in matthew 9 that the harvest is plentiful plentiful the workers are few and that we need to ask the lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field and so then you know i just kind of want to conclude by saying then what is our call as believers you know where do we go from here we have to go to the dark places and the sad places the places that are bereft of love and compassion to seek out those that are unsought by society and you know simply put you know we need to imitate christ by caring for the least of these amongst us and redeeming the 
effects of the curse and pining away until when Christ will come and make all things new. So the question is, like, where is God calling you? And what is God saying to you about this? Thank you. So I'm happy. Yeah. Take questions. Um, I have the privilege of going to Ghana, and it's just under the tree medicine. Yeah. But we see a lot of people that come in, um, they complain of chest pain. It's not MI. Uh, it's it's anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and we have a handout. We talk with them and provide some scripture and teach deep breathing. But do you have any other things that we could? Because we're not. We don't have medication. Yes. Start them on. But anxiety is pretty high. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, um, there's actually, a, for a lot of developing countries where medicine is not accessible, there's a lot of therapy modalities that are very effective. And so, for example, for anxiety and depression, there's a therapy modality called CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And it's actually, it's one of the standards of care, and it's actually very effective in, in treating anxiety and in treating um and, and even in treating depression. So, you know, one of the things that you can do is, you know, work with them through these types of therapy modalities and kind of see what, what is really going on. And a lot of times it comes through these mind loops that come in their head, and often CBT can really help with that. And the other thing I would say is it's like a lot of times in different cultures, there's a lot of somatic presentation of their, of their anxieties or depressions. And so being aware of that is really helpful to, to not miss those. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. You talk about um, Yeah, so that's a good question. So how do you determine it? So, you know, part of it is, you know, it, it's... Um, Part of it is by how you walk with the Lord, you know, because, you know, we are spiritual beings and it says that, you know, what is, and the Lord can give us insight into what's going on and can open our eyes into what's going on. So part of it really requires us being on our knees and us praying about particular situations and seeing what is this and God, is, is this demonic possession? How do you speak into this particular situation? And then it also requires us praying for that person. And, you know, if, if there is a sense that it is more demonic and it's really praying for deliverance and actually doing that um you know i'll tell you amy carmichael like she made me cry when when she first went on a mission field she went to japan and she wasn't familiar with i think like demonic possessions any of those things that she just knew the bible and she went to japan and there was a man in the village that was possessed by that said that they were possessed by a demon and so she's like well I don't know what to do, but I'll just go and try to cast it out. And she tried, and it didn't work, and she went back and cried before the Lord, and she went back again. Eventually, you know, he was able, he was healed and delivered, and that village came to know the Lord. And I love that story because it shows, like, she just trusted the Bible and trusted God to guide her in this. And so I think it's very hard for us, and I can, you know, I can at least speak for myself in a kind of like a biological worldview here. You know, that can become very challenging. But I think that praying and asking the Lord is one of the ways you can be able to discern it. And then actually being bold enough to pray for it is the other part. Yeah. Not emphasize at least touch on the fact of the 
Yeah, that's really good. Um, so like working at MGH, I think it's very difficult to speak about God and the Bible and those kinds of things, which is very understandable. But there are times when you do discern those things. And, and I think there's common grace and common truth principles that you can speak to, speak into without having to say just Jesus or without having to. So oftentimes with patients that I sense that there is a spirit of fear or spirit of man in them, you know, I, I actually explore that and I do say that and, and, and speak into it and kind of share with them what I sense and often they tend to resonate because it's true within them. So I do speak about that because it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah. You are doctor? Yeah. You are African? Yeah. So, so beating like in the churches, they kind of take this one extreme view as pastors, and there's no room for other, other thoughts or other belief that they just think it's just demonic possession. Is that what you're asking? No, it's, it's many pastors. Yeah. System, patriarchal system. Yeah. Yeah. They're treated very highly. And you don't stay because they will excommuning you. Oh, okay. You have access to those social services from the church. How we can do, and we depend, for example, uh, if I say I'm not Christian, they will move me on this service I benefit. For example, I'm with a disability and the church is giving wheelchairs. And the baby say, condition to give you wheelchair, you must sleep with pastor or whatever. How you see we can break silence between our kind of social position, women, and yeah. in the church and the pastor. Like, how you see poverty and the Christianism, how can work together? How we can believe in that fatality? Yeah, so that's uh, that's really a loaded question. Yeah. Okay. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, so um, if I can repeat what you're asking, it's how do we help like this patriarchal system where pastors or leaders are seen as high and have to be respected and they kind of dominate and there isn't really space for for women or people in poverty to really have a voice and how do you reconcile that is that the, is that would that be right quite so i mean i think that's really um it's it's very challenging that's very true in in africa and other parts of the world i think part of it comes through um education and you know especially when it comes to mental illness and mental health like you know it you have to find like you know sometimes like with one of the ministries I'm really affiliated with is when we go we try to find what we call the man of peace the person that is respected within the local community like one leader that you can actually 
connect with so that they can understand where you're from and then using that leader as a voice. So it's really trying to identify, you know, who are the men of peace within the communities that may be leaders, that may be respected, that could be open. Instead of trying to change everybody out there at once, first is really identifying who is that one person. And if you do that prayerfully, the Lord can bring that person about and then working with them. And through that, through their influence, you can try to influence the larger community of leaders. Any other questions? Yeah, back there. Oh, that's a good one. That's a lot. <laughs> oh, okay, so what are your thoughts about the increasing anxiety of, of young people? There's a lot. I don't know where to begin. Um, I, think, I think over time, we have, we have moved our society to a place where we cannot tolerate distress. Like, everything has to be instantaneous. We have to have quick gratification for everything. Any kind of distress is really intolerable. We have to adjust it quickly. So it's kind of, we've become this microwave culture, and that is kind of propagated upon technology, you know, iPhones, TV, all of these things. And so then what happens is, as, as they grow up, they are not growing up with, Taller, well, they don't grow up, somebody said, and that's probably true. Like, as they chronologically grow up. <laughs> right, but, um, you know, what happens is they're not, they're not, they're not experiencing distress or anxieties or things like that in their young age, so they can't tolerate it because everyone is trying to help them quickly. And we've kind of become this pill popper culture and society like if you have a little headache let's get i mean everyone is carrying 10 million types of ibuprofen tylenol tums you know when it like they all have all of these possibilities in their pocket so i think that's one of them and the other is social media you know they really move for, you know god created us to be human beings that interact and commune with one another that's why he created adam and eve and that's why god actually walked with us but now we're moving to a culture where the, there's no more human interaction it's all replaced by facebook and so so you create these walls and this vacuums within our soul and that creates a lot of distress and anxiety and there's a lot to be said about that but i think those are the two big things So I would say no iPhones for you kids at all till they go to college. <laughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> so whether you agree or not, you can give them those footballs if they want. I really believe that. But anyway, <laughs> so, okay. Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's actually, it's, it's very much part of it. Like, it depends, you know, um, I guess different physicians, you know, if they're, if they are also like one more naturally minded or more holistic in the sense. But I think that there is a role for it. You know, for us, for example, when we see a new patient with anything, we do a whole gamut of workup you know, to rule out any kind of medical ideologies, including, you know, certain kinds of chemicals or even like folate deficiencies or vitamin B12 or things like that that might suggest 
that might predispose them to like you know depression or things like that so I think there is a role in it and I think the role is that when you initially encounter someone with mental illness it's worth asking those questions and saying you know is there any organic thing should we do these works up are there indications that we see that, that warrant this work up and if so I think we should definitely do those and do yeah What is it called? Oh. Okay, so okay, can, let me repeat that so that everybody can hear and then you can continue. So she was saying that we need to be cautious and aware of spiritual warfare and she recommends the book The Three the Oh Three Battlegrounds. So by Francis Frangipan, the three battlegrounds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So that's very profound. But yeah, so she she's saying that never cast out demons on an unbeliever because like it says in the Bible that it, they can come back nine times as strong and that you need to bind them up until you read that book. The three battlegrounds. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else before we finish up? Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's a hard question to lump up in summary. But I think that there's definitely, there's a strong genetic correlation with schizophrenia and uh, you, with the propagating the, you know, the second generation, third generation. So I think that there is a genetic element to it. Um, I also think that, you know, like intermarriages, like incestual things, there's also some issues with that that need to be addressed in terms of a spiritual component as well. Um, so I think it can be many things. But if your question is that, is there genetic hereditary implications to certain mental illness? Yes, there is. And I think we also see that in the Bible that there are, you know, there are generational things that we inherit from our families. Also sin. You know, sometimes there are also generational illnesses or things like that that we inherit, you know, from uh, from our families. Not just illnesses or genetic dis- predispositions to, you know, physical problems as well. Um, and I think a good example of that is Elizabeth, who was barren, you know, and, um, she, and she, you know, in the Bible when it talks about Elizabeth, um, the mother of John the Baptist, you know, she had been barren for many years, and then, um, you know, the Lord, you know, blessed her with this child, but if you look, it says that she came from the lineage of Aaron, and it makes that point, and, you know, I always, I write in my Bible, like, on my first page of my Bible is, who is the God of the unmarked verses, you know, you know how you underline in your Bible, maybe some of you don't, but I do, and so there's a whole bunch of not underlined stuff, so I'm like, who is that God that I haven't underlined, and because, you know, because there's something, because each line is not, like, God isn't flippant, right, there's a purpose for everything that's written in that word, and it's just about him opening our eyes, and the reason why I'm saying that is, so it talks about how 
how Elizabeth's heritage came from Aaron, and you're wondering why, why does it tell us that she came from Aaron? What's the significance of that? Well, if you go back to like, I think Exodus or Genesis, and you talk about Aaron, actually, there's a curse that God gives Aaron, and he says, some of your lineage are gonna become barren. And so, and so then you see, you wonder then if that curse was not what was there in Elizabeth. But the great thing is, God is able to break those kinds of curses, and he did for her, so. Yeah. So I think I think we're time. We are time. All right, thank you.